those seven expressions that Jesus made during those last hours before his death and then ultimately his resurrection. We're only got three weeks to work with. And so what we're doing is focusing in on the first expression he made, the middle expression, and then next week we'll look at the last expression. Last week, we talked about the horrific experience that Jesus underwent leading up to coming to the cross. Those things that he experienced leading up to the time that he came to to Calvary and and the first words from his mouth were, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing, the implications of what they're doing. They don't get it. Would you forgive them? Today, we pick up our events in Mark chapter 15, verse 25. If you want to flip there in your Bible, you can. You can go to the Bridge NC app and all the scriptures are there. You can, in fact, save that to your journal and take your own notes right there on your phone. And we will not accuse you of texting in church as long as we can check your app to make sure that you've got the Bridge app up when you do it, okay? All right. And so here we go. It simply says, Mark 15, 25, it's not in your notes, but here we go. It simply says, it was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified Jesus. Simple, world-altering words. I mentioned last week that Jesus fulfilled uh, lots and lots and lots of prophecies that were uttered by Isaiah and others hundreds of years before that event took place. That, and one of them was that he would, be, he would die by crucifixion. In fact, Psalm 22 describes the process of his death a thousand years before he was born and 600 years before death by crucifixion was even invented. And yet the detail is phenomenal. Psalm 37 says that no bones would be broken in the Messiah on the cross. When in fact that was part of the the painful ritual of, of, of bringing these people to death. What literally would happen is that these prisoners, condemned prisoners would be nailed to the cross and there they would be suspended between heaven and earth with spikes in their wrists and their feet and they would, they would slump in the pain but eventually the blood would begin to fill in their lungs and they couldn't breathe and so they'd press themselves up to get a few uh, breaths of air and then the pain would be so excruciating in their feet that they would slump again and over and over and over again for hours they would press up and down uh, feeling the pain catching a breath feeling the pain catching the breath until finally the soldiers wanting to end the whole process would come and break their legs so that they could no longer press up and they would drown in their own fluids the most horrific form of execution ever devised by man. And here's the psalmist saying hundreds of years before, this is how he's going to die, but they won't break his bones. And sure enough, when the Roman soldiers came to Jesus, they said, ah, this one's already dead. There's no need to break his bones. And so they just kind of poked him in the side with a spear instead. And the Bible says the blood and water gushed from his side. I'm told by doctors that the only way that can happen for the blood and the fluids, clear fluids to mingle is if his heart had literally burst. And that's exactly what happened on that day. But we're focusing on what he said in that moment. I want you to get the scene, but we're focusing on what he said. So let's pick up our, the events in Mark chapter 15, verse 33 and 4. That reads like this, at noon, remember he was crucified when? 
9 o'clock at noon, darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. Get the picture. Three hours of enduring all of that, and now noon comes, and in the middle of the day, it, the, the sky becomes completely black as though it's midnight until 3 in the afternoon. And at 3 in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabbathah, which means to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me give you a little hint into how to pronounce foreign language words in the Bible. Say them really fast as though you know how to pronounce them and no one will know the difference. Got it? But we get the English, don't we? My God, my God. Why do I feel so alone in this moment? Why? Have you forsaken me? Understand this is the climax moment of all of human history. This is the moment that all of it comes together. Up until this point, his words have been very measured. They've been very intentional. His first words, I've already told you, his first words were, what were they? They were, Father, forgive them for they don't understand what they're doing. In other words, he took care of the very people who crucified him first. His next words were to turn to the thief beside him and say, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, he took care of his neighbor. And then he looked at John, the beloved, and said, John, behold your mother. In other words, John, you take care of my mama now. So he took care of those who killed him and he took care of his neighbors and he made sure mama was taken care of. But now... You can almost feel the anguish in his words. You can almost feel the pain. And we've seen the physical pain that he endured, but now we're getting a glimpse into the spiritual pain, the emotional pain, the trauma that he experienced. All afternoon in darkness, he suffered in silence, not a sound for three hours. And now after three hours of this darkness, he cries out, why? Now, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up in church and, and I've been taught most of my life that, that it's wrong to ask God why. You ever heard that one before? It, it might even be a sin to ask God why. It, it shows that you don't trust God if you ask why. And I got to be honest with you, I, I never quite understood that when it was being taught to me and I never quite believed it and I never have taught that. I will say to you that in my estimation, it's not a particularly productive question to ask. Because God is not obligated to tell you why nothing. The Bible doesn't say that we, lead, we live by explanation. The Bible says we live by, anybody know? By faith. So he's not obligated to answer the whys this side of eternity. It may take years for some of you or us to understand the why. It may take getting to heaven to go, oh man, now I see why, but he's not obligated to answer. So I think the more productive question when we go through difficult things is to say, okay, God, what are you doing? How are you working? What are you trying to teach me about me? How are you going to work this into a pattern for good like you promised that you would? So it's the what's and the how's that are far more productive kinds of questions. But I can't tell you that asking why is wrong because here's the Savior asking why. In this case, the Bible actually answers us why. And the answers to those questions become very critical to our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. So in the few minutes that I've got with you today, I want to make an attempt to give you three reasons why God turned his back on Jesus for three hours. 
I'm going to give you just a little bit of a glimpse into what was going on in, in the eternal scope of things during that three hours from noon until 3 p.m. that ultimately brought Jesus to ask why. I think there's three reasons God turned his back on Jesus. The first reason is because sin always separates us from God. Say it with me. Sin always separates us from God. The most biblical scholars will say during those three hours was the time that Jesus took on the sin of mankind. It was in those three hours that every sin of every man and every woman who ever lived was heaped upon his shoulders. Isaiah 53 says it this way, verses 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That word iniquity in the original Hebrew was avon, that, that carries the idea of, of, of perversity, crookedness, sin, but it also carries the idea of the punishment that always accompanies sin. The wages of sin is death. So Jesus, who was sinless, took on our sin. He not only took on our sin, but he took on the penalty of our sin in those moments. In those moments, as, as every rape and every murder and every piece of gossip and every lie that was ever uttered or ever will be uttered piled onto his shoulders, Here's how Paul described it to the church at Corinth. First, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's how he said it to the church at Galatia in chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To the Jewish Christians everywhere, Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I'll be honest with you. I read those passages a long time ago, and for many, many years I didn't have a clue what that meant. It, it seemed like word puzzles to me. It didn't communicate in my head for a very long time. Jesus became sin. Jesus was was cursed. Uh, okay, Jesus bore our sins. Maybe that makes a little bit of sense, but I didn't understand it until a friend of mine just a few years ago described it this way, and it, it just opened the window for me. Maybe it'll open it for you as I share this just a moment with you. Just go with me to a courtroom scene. Imagine You've got a judge, you've got the jury, you've got the, the prosecuting attorney, you've got the defense attorney, you've got the defendant. You see that scene, you've got a gallery with people sitting behind you. Everybody got that scene? Do your heads like this if you've got, the, you've got the picture in your mind? Okay, you're sitting in that courtroom scene. Uh, now here's the uniqueness about this particular scene. You are the defendant. You're the accused. And you're accused of a horrific crime, so horrific that the law says you have to be put to death if you're guilty. And so you're sitting there with all of the evidence being presented and there is no doubt in anybody's mind in that room that you in fact did what they've accused you of doing. You know you did it and they know you did it. The jury goes away and deliberates for a reasonable amount of time and they come back and the judge turns to the jury and says, uh, Madam Foreperson, do you have a verdict? And she stands and says, yes, Your Honor, we've reached a unanimous verdict and we find the defendant guilty with egregious circumstances, which is to say we find him guilty and we recommend for the death penalty. 
Now put yourself in that moment. You're the defendant. You're the accused. You know you're guilty, but you were hoping against hope that they would come back and say, well, he's a nice guy. Let's cut him some slack. But they didn't. They came out and said, yeah, he did it. The law says the death penalty is the appropriate punishment for that. And so your insides turn to jello as you shiver there knowing that you're going to die. You can almost hear your mother sitting behind you weeping at the reality of what's about to happen to you. Just get in the moment for a second. The judge takes his gavel and he hits it on the bench and he's, he says, so ordered. He looks at you and says, I sentence you to death. And then he does something strange. He does something really weird. He, he gets up, he just stands up and he looks at you and he says, you know what? I like you. I, I don't, you didn't do, do anything to deserve me liking you. I love you. You didn't do anything to deserve my love, but I just do. And, and as a judge, there's really nothing I can do about this because I am duty bound to uphold the law and this is what the law says. So as a judge, I really can't help you here, son, daughter. Um, but as a man, here's what I can do. And he reaches for his zipper and he unzips his robe and he takes it off and he lays it across the desk and he comes around and he steps down and he says, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your sentence. You're free to go. And at first it's a little surreal and you go, I don't, oh, I don't know if I, ugh. really? No, this is a joke? What is a bad joke? What, what is this about? No, no, I'm serious. Uh, you're free to go. I'm going to die the death that you earned. Once that starts to sink in, you're, you're just incredibly grateful. You're just kind of blown away by the whole thing. It's like, well, your honor, are you sure? He said, yes, I, uh, I will ask one thing. Uh, while you're out there living, could you do your best to live the life that I would have lived? If I had lived? Because now you're living as a representative of me. Could you, could you do that? as an act of gratitude and your response would be, yes, sir, yeah, yes, sir, absolutely. And so the judge says, okay, bailiff, take me away. Now you get that, as, as absurd as that story might be, it, it, it's clear, it's understandable what's just happened in this moment. Well, that's exactly what happened in those moments that Jesus became sin. Jesus took on the curse. Jesus bore our sins. It wasn't his sin that nailed him to the cross. He didn't have any sin. It was my sin that nailed him to the cross. In fact, whisper it in this moment with me. It was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. He was paying for my sin. Well, okay, Jim, I get it, but, but how, does that, how does that explain the why question? You said this explains why God turned his back. Well, here's how. Our God is a holy God. He's unconditionally loving, but he's also just. And his love for us says, I have to make a way for us to be in relationship, but his holiness requires that he not say sin is okay because sin's not okay. 
Sin brings death to our lives. It brings death to the lives of everybody we touch. It brings death to the world. And so from the time Adam and Eve uh, until now, sin separates us from God. Say with me, sin separates us from God. You, you cannot sin on Saturday night and walk in here on Sunday morning, and when you see people in the room singing those songs with hands raised and tears flowing, join in like nothing happened because there's a separation that comes because of the sin that's unresolved. Come on, look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, put it in human terms. Jim Gilligan is our executive pastor. He's, he's also my friend. He's my brother in Christ. I love him to death. We work together constantly, you know, in each other's offices every day and, and just love the man to death. But if, if somehow I had uh, spoken to a group of people and told a lie about Jim G, we call him, or betrayed his trust in some way, then the next time I see Jim G, would there be a barrier between us? Why? Because I sinned against him, right? If nothing else, there would be a barrier caused by my wondering whether or not he knows. <laughs> it's like, ooh, ooh. I wonder if Jim knows what I did. I wonder if he knows what I said. I wonder if anybody told him that I lied about him or betrayed him in some way. I wonder. And so I would start to edge back a little bit just because I'm, I'm concerned that he would find out and he might not know anything about what I've done, but he would recognize that I've started to pull away and he doesn't understand why I'm pulling away. So he would start asking questions, which I would, which I would take as pressure to find out what really happened when he doesn't have a clue what happened. And before you know what, our relationship is damaged. Why? Because I sinned against him. And our relationship doesn't get healed until that gets resolved. Is that making sense? Well, that's exactly what happened. Here's what you need to know when it comes to God. You know, and you know he knows. And he knows that you know that he knows. And he knows that you know that he knows that you, yeah, you know what I mean. There's no wondering about it. When it comes to God, Habakkuk said in chapter 1, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, so you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. When it comes to us, Isaiah, who was confronted with God himself, his response in Isaiah 6, 5 was, Woe unto me, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He understood not only could not God not look on my wrongdoing, I can't look on a holy God knowing that there is unresolved sin in my life. Hear me, guys, sin always separates us from God. Holy God cannot look on sin any more than a sinful man can look on a holy God. There's a separation that comes because of sin that ultimately unresolved leads to death. So Jesus, fully man and fully God, took on the sins of all mankind and God the Father had no choice but to look away. Which leads us to the second reason why, and that is to show us that God made a way for us to reconnect. 
He made a way for us to reconnect, even though Jesus took on the sins of all mankind. And in those moments, the Father turned away. The, the fact of the matter is, God knew it was going to happen before he ever created us. He knew we were going to blow it before he ever made Adam and Eve. He knew we were going to mess up. And so he made a plan before he ever made man to reconnect after we blew it. I mean, he couldn't say sin was okay because it's not. Somebody did the crime, somebody's got to do the time. Somebody did the crime, somebody's got to do the time. Say it with me. Somebody did the crime, somebody's got to do the time, but he loved us so much that he made a way to close the gap that our sin created. And so from the very beginning of time, Leviticus is one of those Old Testament books that if you decide to read through the Bible one year, you get to Leviticus. It's, it's, it's very, very tempting just to skip that one. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. It gets in all of those laws and rules and policies and it's got blah, 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 blah. But there's a lot of rich stuff in Leviticus I would encourage you to dig into when you have the opportunity. A lot of symbols of New Testament truths to come. Chapter 16 is one of the richest particularly on this subject, because it gives us the, the instructions that God gave to Moses for the people to do in order to be reconnected with him after their sin. In fact, he called it the day of atonement. That word atonement simply means payment. And so it's the day that all of the sins of the nation for the year would be paid. It was one day a year that was set aside to pay for their sins. And the instructions were incredibly precise and difficult to do just a glimpse into some of the detail. Only the high priest was allowed to represent the people and he went into the holy of holies of the tabernacle. He was the only one allowed in there. They, they tied bells to the bottom of his robes so that they could hear him back there, cling, 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 just to be sure he didn't do something wrong and fell dead back there. They tied a rope around his ankle to drag him out back there. They tied a rope out if he did because nobody could go back there to get him. Never happened, but you get the picture. But before going into the holy of holies, they, he had to representing humanity. He first had to make a sacrifice for himself. He had to deal with his own sin and confess before God his own sin before he could represent the people. And then they would bring him two goats. One goat would die, one would live. The one that was sacrificed, he would take some of the blood and he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would put some of that blood on the mercy seat and then he would come back out and he would put some of the blood on the goat that would live. He'd tie a scarlet rope around his horns and then he would lay hands on that goat and he would confess the sins of the nation. He would acknowledge that they had failed God, that they had failed to obey his commands, that they had failed to do the things that God had told them to do. He would acknowledge that they had not lived up to the holiness of God. And now that goat symbolically represented the sin of the entire nation and they sent him away. They sent him out of the camp, never to be seen again, symbolically sending their sins away from the camp. They actually had a nickname for him. They called him the scapegoat because he didn't sin. The nation did. The nation did the crime. The animal did the time. 
And so God planned from the very beginning of time a way for us to be reconciled to him. But God's plan for us didn't, didn't stop there because he knew we'd mess that up too. So he also planned at the right time that his son Jesus would be the final once and for all, for all mankind's sacrifice. The Bible says that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Hear me, the crucifixion was not a Roman soldier idea. The crucifixion was not the, 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 the false religious leaders of the day who were trying to get rid of him because he was usurping their power. That may have been their motives, but that's not what was going on in that moment. They didn't kill Jesus because he challenged them. He laid down his life willingly for me. He laid down his life because I sinned. And he couldn't bear to be separated from me. He laid down his life because you sinned. And he couldn't bear to be separated from you. He said, I'll pay it. I'll pay the price. I'll take it on myself. I'll pay the wages of your sin. I did the crime. He did the time, First John chapter 3, verse 16. We know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But First John 3, 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for who? Come on, personalize it. For me. Whisper it for me. He laid down his life for me. And he knew full well what he was doing. John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled, he said. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Matthew 26, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He knew what he came to do, and he came to do it on purpose, with a purpose, to, re to redeem you, to bring you back to him, to close the gap that your sin and my sin created from God. The cross was not an afterthought. It's why he came. Dates all the way back to just after Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, bought into the lie, and disobeyed God. God looked at the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heal. Pastor Jim paraphrased, God said to Satan, you think you won today, but I saw this coming and I've already got a plan in place to fix it. You will not bring death to my creation, old boy. You may strike my son's heel, but he's going to crush your head. Come on. He's going to crush your head. That's the North Carolina translation right there is what that is. Wait a minute, whoa, 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 wait, 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 pastor. If, if, if God knew we were going to disobey him, why did he make us? That seems certifiably dumb to me. How many of your parents? You see your hands? How many knew your children would disobey you one day? Maybe even break your heart? 
was it certifiably dumb to make them? No, because we all have this need, this desire to reproduce ourselves, to have somebody who looks like us walking around, somebody to perpetuate the generations of our family, somebody to be our pride and joy. That's my boy. Yeah, that's my girl over there. That's my pride and joy right there. You get that? That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus came knowing why he came. In his humanity, he dreaded the cross. But in his deity, he willingly endured it all for you and for me. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What's the joy they're referring to? It's us. We are the joy. Look at somebody and say, you're the joy of Jesus. Look at him. Come on. You're the joy of Jesus. You, you, you ever heard a baby called a bundle of joy? Well, you're a bundle of joy to Jesus. So much so that he was willing to pay the price for your sin and mine. Three days later, he arose from the grave. He's alive. And because he's alive, we get to live why did the why did the father turn his back on Jesus for a brief time first because sin always separates us from God a holy God cannot look on sin as though it's okay because it's not okay secondly because he wanted us to know that that was a temporary situation he already had a plan he wanted us to see what happens Next, the third reason is Jesus was rejected, so I won't have to be. He was rejected, so we won't have to be. On that day on the cross, Jesus endured all of these things, including rejection, which is the most painful of the emotional things that I guess he dealt with. But the truth is Jesus was no stranger to rejection. He experienced rejection the whole time he was here on earth. I mean, his whole time. I mean, at one point, his own family said, come on, Jesus, come on home. You're embarrassing us. Quit this Messiah business and come on home. Eventually, his own, his own disciples abandoned him. The, the Jews, which he initially came for, largely rejected him. He was betrayed by one of his own, Judas, and one of his closest friends, John, denied even knowing him. He understood. He was rejected at every step of the way, but he endured all of that. He endured all of that because he, he didn't let fear of rejection stop him from doing what he needed desperately to do, which was to reconnect us with the Father. And so because he was willing to endure rejection, because he died and rose from the grave, because he's alive today, we don't ever have to be alone again, ever. No matter what circumstance we face, we don't ever have to be alone again. He said, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. He said, even if your mother and father forsake you, I will never forsake you.
Paul said it to the church at Rome in chapter 8, verse 38 and 9, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor ruling spirits, nothing now, nothing in the future, no powers, nothing above us, nothing below us, nor anything else in the whole world will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord because of what Jesus endured, particularly during those three hours from noon to 3 p.m. We don't ever have to be alone again. The only question is, what are we going to do about it? Dale Saul's good friend of mine, some of you know Dale, had a very close friend whose grandfather was very far from the Lord and very resistant to any idea, conversation about the gospel. His friend's name was Sam and and he said Sam would try to testify to his grandfather, try to tell his grandfather how good God is. And one day he told him a little bit about this story. His grandfather said, I didn't ask him to die for me. I didn't want him to die for me. I never asked for that. And Sam, emboldened in the moment, said, Granddad, I know you didn't ask for that. But it happened. The only question is, will one person die for your sins? Or will too. You don't have to. But you do have to accept what Jesus did. You have to be grateful for what he did. You have to acknowledge that you are a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. It was your sin he paid for. And when you do, you don't ever have to be alone again. I realize in a place like this, on a day like this, both in the room and online, there's some of you who have never come to this moment. Well, yeah, God is love. God loves everybody. It's okay. We all go to heaven. But the realization that a holy God has to turn his back until we deal with our sinfulness has just dawned on you. So in the quietness of this moment, I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to, in the quietness of this moment, I'm not going to get them to sing another song in 37 verses of just as I am till somebody comes to the altar and, you know, all that stuff. I'm just simply going to say, what are you going to do about the reality that Jesus prayed the, paid the price for your? What are you going to do? It's your call. It's your choice. He makes the offer. He sent me as a messenger to tell you the offer. I hope you'll accept it. Let's pray. Father, you know what's going on in every one of our hearts. My sense is that Probably the majority of the people that are listening to me right now have come to this place at one point in their lives. They've accepted what you did for them on Calvary, gratefully asked for forgiveness of sins and a fresh start in life. And I thank you for every one of them. But my sense is also that there are any number of those folks who since then have offended your holiness through their actions, their words, 
their failure to act, their failure to speak, their selfishness. So maybe in this moment, there are folks that are gonna pray this kind of prayer for the very first time. Maybe there are even more who are gonna say, would you give me a fresh start today? pray out loud. You can pray silently. Pray in your own words if you want, but really would love for all of you to pray this simple prayer with me. Goes something like this. Thank you, Jesus, for making the way for me to be connected to the God of the universe. I know there's a hole in my soul. It's a God-shaped hole. And I thank you for making a way for that hole to be filled. Forgive me of my sin that created the hole. Give me a fresh start today, healing and new life. In Jesus' name. Father, you know who's praying, you know the circumstance of their lives, you know every detail of their lives. And I pray simply that each one of us would reflect honestly on where we are in terms of our relationship with you and that we'll have just taken a giant leap toward you in a way that honors what you did for us on Calvary so many years ago. And particularly as we approach Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and celebrate the fact that you are risen. In Jesus' name, amen.